Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Churchwood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about today. Greg told me um, probably back in July, hey, do you want to preach on, on January 1st? And um, it's, it's sometimes not a good thing to have like a seven-month runway or like a, I don't know, five-month runway, I guess, because um, then I'm just, I'm just like trying to get in as much material as I can, but um, I'm very excited about this morning. We're going to be talking about the presence of God. Um, I don't know about you guys. I, worship was so sweet this morning. Um, team, thank you so much for the way in which you guys led. Um, I'm, I'm hungry for the presence of the Lord. I don't know. I don't know about you guys. Um, this message this morning on the presence of God kind of started a few months back. Um, we were in staff meeting sharing about what we wanted our church to be. And Ted uh, started talking about how he wanted the church restoration in particular to be a church where the manifest presence of God rested, yes. to be a place where people from the community would come in and encounter Jesus and be transformed. That it would be a place where marriages would be restored and reconciled and healed. That it would be a place where people would be healed physically. That people would come to faith because of what's happening here. And as you begin to share this, it's easy um, as you know, especially if you work at a church, it's easy to kind of get accustomed to the week in and week out that you just kind of lose sight of the main thing. It, 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 it can become easy to go, okay, I have to get this done, this done, this done so that service can happen on Sunday. But you kind of miss the why of why you're doing it. And so as Ted began to share this, I started to get emotional because I realized like, man, I only want to go to a church where stuff like that is happening. Like, I just, I don't have time for anything else. I don't care about anything else. Like, if lives are getting transformed, who cares? Um, and thankfully, we are in a place where that is happening. Yes. But the, the, I think the caution in what he was saying was that if we don't continue to articulate our desire to see that happen, then we can become complacent or satisfied. And then what was a move of God just becomes a memory. And I don't want that to be the case. I want, I want to see God moving all the time here. And in order for that to happen, we need to be a people who welcome the move of God here. So we're going to be talking about the presence of the Lord this morning. Um, we're going to be in two passages specifically. If you have your Bibles, and if you have a fancy Bible that has two bookmarks in it, 
you can turn, turn to um, 2 Samuel chapter 6 and Luke chapter 24. Here's a quote from John Ortberg. He's a pastor and author. He says, the story of the Bible is not primarily the story of man's desire to be with God, but about God's desire to be with people. I want to give a definition real quick to a phrase that I'm going to be using throughout the message. And that phrase is hosting the presence. That can sound like a really like, like kind of mystical kind of, you know, left field type thing. Here's what I mean when I say that. I mean that we would live our lives in such a way that we acknowledge God at all times and we honor him for who he is. This can happen here in the service and worship as we sing. It can happen, you know, two o'clock this morning. I don't know what you guys were doing, probably sleeping or maybe you were still popping fireworks. Don't be, don't be those people who do that. But, um, but what I was doing at 2 a.m. this morning was cleaning a blowout from my uh, almost eight-week-old on my couch. But even there, God's presence can be acknowledged and interacted with. Um, the good thing about God's presence is that he is just as much in here as we're singing fall afresh and we're singing the Lord's prayer. He's just as much in, in here as he is there. Yes. Amen. And the problem can be when we start to think that he's not. And so we think, um, oh, I just need to get to another worship service and that'll fix my problems. And it's like, well, God's presence is available everywhere. The only thing that's changing is your expectancy. And um, so we want to be a people, what, what I mean when I say hosting the presence is we want to be a people who acknowledge his presence everywhere at all times and give him the honor that he's due. Yes, amen. Um, so let's jump in. Second Samuel chapter six, it says, again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Now, I don't know how many of you guys were raised in church or not or who know what the ark of the covenant is. It's not the same as Noah's ark. Um, the ark of the covenant is a gold box with two gold poles on both sides so that the priest would be able to carry it on their shoulders. Inside the box were the tablets that Moses came down the mountain with. And on the lid of the box were two angels. That's what the cherubim are that they're mentioning. Two angels and their wings are spread like this. And in the middle of the cherubim is what's called the mercy seat where once a year, the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of Israel. This is what David is wanting to bring back into the city of Jerusalem. It says in verse three, so they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Yuzah and Io, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Io went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, harps, stringed instruments, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Yuzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen had stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused again against Yuzah and God struck him there for his error. 
and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So you have David, the Levites, some other guys coming to take the ark from the house of Abinadab into Jerusalem. They're carrying it on a cart. Cart slips, Yuzah grabs it, the Lord kills him. The Hebrew insinuates that Yuzah like exploded. So if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you kind of have a framework for what's happening here. And if you're anything like me, you can read this story and think, man, that was kind of harsh. Like Yuzah probably had good intentions. I mean, I'm sure if by a show of hands, we would all raise our hands. Like if the ark slipped off, slipped off the cart, we would all grab it, right? Like we don't want it to fall. But there's some principles we need to take away in this story. And the first, is, the first of which is while Yuza seemed to just be trying to help, he should have never been in that situation in the first place. In Numbers 4, God commands the children of Israel that when they move the ark, they are to carry it on their shoulders, and rather than carrying the ark in the way that God commanded it, they carried it in a way that only the Philistines had moved it up until that point. Yes. Being Levites, they should have known what God commanded, but instead they settled for what was more efficient. If we are to be a people who host the presence of God, and by that I mean a people who live in relationship with him, we cannot trade obedience for efficiency. Amen. We talk a lot in this church, if you've been here for any period of time, you've heard Ephesians 2.10. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he's prepared beforehand for us to do. And that is true. All of us have been called and been given a purpose by God. All of us have a dream of God resting over our lives. Yes. However, Jesus is not the custodian for your dreams. Amen. He's not the means by which you can live the life you've always wanted. Jesus is the life you've always wanted. Yes. Jesus is not the vehicle by which you fulfill all your dreams. Jesus is the dream. Yes. Amen. And if we start to get that out of balance, we really just tack on Jesus to our lives and continue on about our day. Amen. And we see this throughout scripture that it's not a good thing to get your inheritance before it's time. If you look in Acts chapter seven, Stephen recounts the entire uh, history of Israel back to the Pharisees. And he tells the story of Moses. And he says, um, when Moses was 40 years old, he saw an Egyptian master, taskmaster, beating up on a Hebrew slave. And Moses killed the Egyptian taskmaster because he was hoping that in doing so, the Israelite would realize that Moses was actually there to be a deliverer. That did not happen. Um, Moses had to go out in the desert for another 40 years and learn how to be a shepherd before God called him to be a deliverer. Amen. But what you see here is in this story is Moses knew what he was called to be, but he tried to take his calling in his own strength. And we see the same thing 
tempted to Jesus in the wilderness, that Satan tempts Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world, something that God was actually going to give Jesus. But Satan's temptation is to take what's yours outside of God's timing. And you see it elsewhere in the gospels where the crowds come to take Jesus and make him king by force. And he just vanishes in their midst. We need to be a lot more concerned about the timing of God than necessarily what he's called us to. Because if you get what you're called to outside of the timing, the calling becomes a curse. Um, the way of Jesus is slow, a lot slower than many of us would like. And um, we, we would probably do things a lot differently and praise God we don't get our way. Um, secondly, well, actually, I have a quote that I want to say. Um, there's an author, his name's Christopher Watkin, not Walken. Um, and he says, Satan chooses what works which by the end of the Bible will lead him to his doom. God chooses what is true, which is also in the end what works. Yes. Hosting God's presence won't always and will probably never be the efficient or expedient path, but it will be the path that brings blessing and not destruction. Yes. Secondly, we see David and a bunch of musicians, they're coming and they're bathing the moment in worship music, which as a worship leader kind of touches a nerve for me. And it's interesting that the whole story is undergirded with disobedience, yet you find David trying to lead worship. It should go without saying that no amount of singing or serving will tip the scales on a life built on disobedience. Because like Yuza, we will die trying to cover for situations we shouldn't be in in the first place. Right intentions in the wrong situation is still wrong. And we see that in the life of Yuza. God is more concerned with our obedience than our spiritual checklist. Our list of spiritual activities do not impress him. We need to know that going into the 21 days of prayer and fasting. Because sometimes when we go into seasons of fasting, we think that somehow God's going to be impressed or somehow we're going to twist God's arm into answering a prayer. And that's, if that's our heart position going into it, we're missing the point altogether. Amen. Our list of spiritual activities don't impress him and they will not distract him or act as a smoke screen from him addressing the areas that we wish to sidestep. Amen. He sees our heart which is a very comforting and very scary thing. Lastly, I want to look at the life of Obed-Edom. He might seem like a random character in scripture, and while he's not mentioned a lot, his life is a life worth paying attention to. In this story, we see that David drops off the ark at his house, and rather mysteriously, this ark that brought death in one verse brings exponential blessing in another. Why is that? I believe the answer is found in the meaning of Obed-Edom's name. His name means one who honors God in the right way. So while David and his priests were trying to honor God in their own way, they were trying to define the terms. Obed was one who honored God in the right way. He hosted the ark in his house and because of his posture before the Lord, everything in his life was blessed. In fact, later on, I think it's in 2 Chronicles, when David is looking um, to recruit guards 
for the gates of the temple that they were drawing up plans for, Obed-Edom is mentioned as one of the people who he was recruiting. When David was looking for people to guard and host God's presence, he knew just who to call. Your ability to live a life yielded to the presence of God, honoring him for who he is and giving him the rightful place in your life will bring blessing to you and your household. This is because when we give God the rightful place in our life, we don't compartmentalize him to a certain hour on Sunday morning or the first 15 minutes of the day or the last five minutes before we go to sleep. Our entire life becomes his. And we become blessed. Not in the sense that if you do this, you'll get a house or all your debt will be paid off or you'll walk out in the driveway and the Maserati will be sitting there. Rather, your life will be blessed because God is inhabiting every area of it and he himself is the blessing. That's what honoring God looks like. Recognizing that it's not the stuff that's the blessing. It's him. Let the legacy of our lives be that we are remembered for honoring God in the right way. So, Obed-Edom's getting blessed. David's getting jealous. He hears about all the blessing that's coming on Obed's house. And he decides he wants to go back and resume the mission to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. So he brings all the Levites with him. They go to Obed's house to get the ark. But this time something changes. Rather than carrying the ark on a cart, the Levites carry it. We're starting from square one with obedience. The Levites are carrying it. And instead of using the oxen, every six steps, David is sacrificing the oxen. Which to me speaks to the fact that the, the need to sacrifice efficiency in order to be obedient is a continual need. Because I'm sure every few paces, the Levites were like, man, this thing's heavy. And those oxen are looking pretty good right now. Let's just put this thing back on the cart. And David's like, nope. David is removing the means. He's removing the temptation to be efficient. And as he's bringing the ark back into the city, much to the chagrin of his wife, he starts to take off his clothes and dance. <laughs> and, um, and I want you to picture for a minute, not super, not super vividly, but, but imagine with me for a moment, David who is disrobing himself, going into the city of Jerusalem, carrying the ark. There's a trail of blood behind him from all the oxen that are being sacrificed into the city as they bring the ark in, signifying God's presence with a particular people in a particular moment. I want you to picture that and bookmark it because we're gonna talk about that a little bit later. We're gonna speed through the next part because essentially what I'm doing is I'm giving you an overview of the presence of God throughout all of scripture. So brace yourselves. Um, David can't build the temple. He has too much blood on his hands. So he gives, God says, you need to have Solomon do it. So Solomon in first Kings eight dedicates the temple. And some of you might know that when he dedicates the temple, the glory of God comes down in a cloud and none of the ministers can minister anymore because God's presence is so thick. And it's like when God, when God is in the room, activity gets swallowed up in abiding. Yes. There's nothing left to do. All the to-do lists go out the window. Yes. And Amen. the only thing left to do is be present to his presence. Yes. That's it. But as the story of Israel goes, 
they fall away pretty fast. I say the story of Israel, it's the story of us too. Um, they fall away pretty fast. They have wicked kings who don't follow the way of the Lord. And so God hands them over to the Babylonians and, and the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem and burn the temple to the ground and then take the nation of Israel into captivity for 70 years. And that's where we get the, the Old Testament books of Lamentations, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And after the 70 years, a small remnant of Israel goes back to Israel to build Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but there's something different about the second temple than the first temple. We never read about God's glory returning to the second temple. And you get a sense at the end, the back half of the Old Testament, because you don't really see it in the first half. The back half of the Old Testament seems to almost be obsessed with the return of the Lord because they have a, they have a gloryless temple. And you see at the end of the book of Zechariah and Malachi, this foreshadowing of God's return as though they are a nation that is still in exile. They are back in the land, but the, but the God that they worship hasn't returned. The consolation of his presence hasn't come back yet. So then you fast forward to the New Testament. In Luke 2, Maybe some of you read this recently. I know growing up every Christmas morning, we would sit down and read Luke chapter two together. But in Luke chapter two, we read about a man who is waiting at the gate of the temple because God had told him that he wouldn't die until he had seen the consolation of Israel. Then all of a sudden, in a most unexpected fashion, the glory of the Lord returns to the temple, but it's not in the form of a cloud. It's in the form of a little baby boy. The Lord returns to his people in Jesus. And more than just returning to the temple, God in Jesus becomes the temple. And where in the Old Testament you would die if you touched God's presence as manifest in the ark, in Jesus, God becomes touchable. Rather than dying, you get healed. The men with leprosy experiencing the touch of Jesus, the woman with an issue of blood touching the hem of his garment, the blind man who gets a muddy eye rub from Jesus, they all get healed. But it's not just people. The hands of Jesus lift up a basket of bread and fish and it multiplies and feeds thousands. The words of Jesus tell the disciples to cast their net on the other side and they can't contain the number of fish they bring in. There's even a few stories of uh, Roman centurions and, and different masters coming to Jesus saying, oh, my son, my servant is sick. They're on their deathbed and Jesus doesn't even have to go to them. He just says, just go back, they're healed. The blessing that rested on Obadiah's house was made manifest in the person of Jesus. If you notice, um, in the scripture we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it says that the ark was um, marked by the name, the Lord of hosts. And in John 17, Jesus says, Lord, I have manifested your name among the people. The blessing that rested in Obed's house was made manifest in the person of Jesus. And at the end of each gospel, we read the events surrounding Jesus' death. He was betrayed by those closest to him, handed back and forth between temple authorities and Romans who ultimately worked together to kill him. He was tortured, stripped naked, marched out of Jerusalem, carrying his cross to the place where he would ultimately be crucified. For a moment, I want you to recall the story earlier about David bringing the ark into Jerusalem. 
and see that Jesus is the better David. In David's story, we see him, the king, disrobing and humiliating himself in celebration in front of the entire nation. In Jesus, we see him disrobed and humiliated in front of the entire nation. In David's story, we see the priests carrying the ark, which contained the law of the old covenant on their shoulders. In Jesus, we see him carrying the cross, the means of the new covenant on his shoulders. In David's story, we see him sacrificing oxen every six steps, leaving a trail of blood into the city. And in Jesus's story, he becomes the sacrifice and his trail of blood out of the city signifies that God's presence is no longer for a specific people, but for all people. And rather than the blood of the old covenant being sprinkled between two cherubim with their arms spread, Jesus pours out the blood of the new covenant between two thieves with their arms spread. Jesus is the better David. So Jesus is dead and his disciples are dismayed. They were probably pretty excited about getting to be a part of this messianic band that were changing and uprooting the culture and all of a sudden their leader gets killed. And in Luke 24, the story picks up with two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem disappointed and dismayed on their way back to their city. And that's where we pick up in verse 13 of Luke 24. It says, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. So it was that while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of those whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of, vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going and he indicated that they would have, he would have gone farther, but they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went into them, uh, he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed it, broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. It's my favorite thing Jesus does. It's like, I was a big Batman fan growing up. Like the, I just picture like smoke pellets, just and then he's just gone. Um, that's not a theological statement, by the way. Um, 
And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scripture to us? This is honestly one of my favorite passages of scripture. We see that Jesus isn't waiting in Jerusalem, arms folded, disappointed that his disciples are dismayed. He joins them on the road. Jesus isn't just in there before and he's not just in there after, but he's in there during. He doesn't just act like he doesn't notice that they are sad like many of us would. I say many of us, I mean me. Um, people are sad and they're grieving and you, you can, it's easy to like get uncomfortable and just like act like you don't notice that that's happening. I don't know if you deal with the same thing. Um, but Jesus does not deal with that problem. If he sees that you're sad or grieving, he not only acknowledges it, but he wants you to talk about it. That's why that, it, Jesus knew what happened. Obviously it happened to him but he wanted them to say it. He wanted them to expose the wound so that he could heal it. Exactly. Um, many of you know that Samantha and I, we just had our second son. His name is Silas. He's about to be eight weeks old. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I've shared this when I've uh, preached on Sunday before. In 2017, we were pregnant with our first child and um, she was stillborn at Memorial Hermann. Her name was Harper. And... Um, our next child, Hudson, who's the wild four-year-old who's running around on Sunday mornings, he was born at Methodist, shout out Methodist Hospital. Um, but Silas, we had him back at Memorial Hermann and the room was just right down the hall from where we had lost Harper. And uh, going into the situation, there were some nerves, some anxiety, you know, you're being brought back into a vicinity that the most traumatic event of your life happened in. Um, and uh, so we were there and things were looking good. Um, we were getting induced and, you know, it's, for those of you who know or don't know, it's a process. You have to kind of wait till you cross a certain threshold and then it's time to start pushing. Um, and we were, we were kind of at the threshold and the doctor noticed every time there's a contraction or Samantha tried to push, Silas's heart rate would just drop dramatically um, to the point where he began to get pretty nervous. And he was like, hey, we need to, we need to take him right now, C-section, let's go. And Samantha and I were in this place where just a few minutes before, we were like happy and expectant. In fact, I went out to the waiting room to tell my dad and came back and I passed the room we were in with Harper and it was empty, there was no one in there. And I just went and stood in there for a few minutes. I don't know why, I, I, there's, I think there's something innately in us that's drawn back to our places of trauma. And I just went and stood in there and I, and kind of internally was like, we made it, like we made it through this. And, um, but not just, I mean, just a few minutes after that, we get thrust into this other situation and, and I get in this position, I'm, I, you know, there's like fight, flight, or freeze. I'm in the freeze place. I just kind of shut down and then wheel Samantha out. I don't even say goodbye. The doctors are like, here's some scrubs. We don't even know if you're going to be able to go into the room or not, but just in case you are, Here's the scrubs. So I'm sitting out in the hallway in scrubs that are far too small for me. Um, and uh, I'm sitting in this chair and there's doctors and nurses running up and down the hall, in and out of the door. No one's telling me anything. I'm automatically going to the worst because once you experience the worst, it's easy to just go right back there. Um, I'm thinking, okay, I came here with my wife. 
we are about to deliver our son. Am I leaving here alone? Like, like what's going to happen, you know? And the doctor comes in or out of the room and he says, hey, you can come in. So I walk in the room and it's crazy. Like there's doctors everywhere doing all this stuff. And, um, but I walk in and, and there's worship music playing in the OR and it's really, it's so weird. Um, I remember just being so like caught off guard by that. And um, I go and, and sit next to Samantha and she's crying and there's, they're playing the song we played here. It's by Upper Room. It's called Rest On Us. And, you know, it's not exactly the moment for an upbeat song, um, but uh, I was very intently listening to the words and the words say, as the spirit was moving over the water, spirit come move over us. And I started thinking about creation and the spirit of God hovering over the waters and bringing order out of chaos and how that's, we're here in the middle of chaos, it feels like, and I'm like, God, just bring order or something out of this, you know? And um, so they deliver Silas and they put him on the table and I can see him, but Samantha can't see him. And he's unresponsive. He's purple. He's there laying on the warmer. They're lifting up his hands and dropping them. And they're just dropping, like just totally limp. And Samantha's asking me if he's okay. And I'm just lying to her. Like, yeah, he's fine. They're just cleaning him off. But I'm seeing him. And I'm like, he's not, like, he's not okay. And they put the mask on him and start, like, pumping the oxygen. And, and eventually he comes too. And, um, and everything was fine. Uh, and they had to... He had to go to the NICU for a few days just to kind of recover from the process. And we go, Samantha and I go back into the room and we start talking about what we just experienced. <laughs> and, um, and Samantha thought that I had told the nurse to turn on worship music. And I thought she had told the nurse to turn on worship music. Um, but neither one of us did. And um, I'm not sure how that all played out. But um, one of the, I think I was still in this freeze place of not understanding what was happening and kind of being bitter that it was happening. And Samantha was like, this was God. Like, um, and, you know, Greg says, I think he said this from the platform before. If he hasn't, he's said it to me, that God will bring you back to your place of deepest pain so that he can heal you. And and that's true, but I want to be more specific. Um, For us, I think God brought us back to our place of deepest pain to show that he was in the midst of it. He wasn't just in the aftermath. And, um, in the same way, Jesus meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He doesn't meet them in Emmaus. He doesn't stay in Jerusalem. He walks with them along the road. He, he meets them in the midst of what's happening and walks them through it. In the same way, the presence of Jesus doesn't just find us in our after. He finds us in the midst. Secondly, Jesus gives them a Bible study while they walk. How cool would it be to have a Bible study led by Jesus himself? But before he does this, he rebukes them. <laughs> Gotta love it. He doesn't rebuke them for not knowing scripture, but for not believing it. This is a key point for all of us who sometimes think that knowledge and belief are synonymous. Jesus walks these guys through scripture, but does so in a way that shows that all of scripture, in fact, points to him. He does the same thing. I think it's in John when he tells the Pharisees, like, hey, Moses wrote about me, which was just like... It's the crucified Jesus who illuminates all of scripture to us by showing us himself in every story and in every verse. So just so you know, when you read scripture, look for Jesus before you look for yourself. Early church father Irenaeus puts it this way. If anyone therefore reads the scriptures with attention, he will find in them an account of Christ. 
For Christ is the treasure which was hid in the field. And when it is read by the Christians, it is a treasure hid indeed in the field, but brought to light by the cross of Christ. Jesus is what makes this understandable to us. We wouldn't have any idea what this means if it wasn't for him. Lastly, the disciples like Obed-Edom welcomed Jesus, who is the manifest presence of God incarnate in their home. But then something interesting happens. Jesus, the invited guest, assumes the role of the host and is the one who sits down, takes the bread, breaks it, blesses it, and gives it to them. Oftentimes in meetings and in services, when we feel the presence of God in a strong way, we say, God showed up. And if you've been here for any first Wednesday, you've heard Greg say, God didn't show up. We did. I don't want to expound on that a little bit because I don't know about you, but I've been in worship services where a shift happens and it's more the sum of its parts. It's, it's more, it feels like more than just me acknowledging his presence. And, and I think when I was reading this story, I was like, oh, that's it. That's what happens. Here's what it is. I think when we say when God showed up, what we mean is that when we honor God as the guest, as Obed-Edom did with the ark and as the disciples did on the road to Emmaus by inviting Jesus into their house, God moves from being the guest to the host. And just like when the presence descended in the temple, when God becomes the host, all of our to-do lists go out the window. This is the better part that Mary chose that Martha missed. Tim Keller says it this way, to stand in the presence of God, that is what the gospel is. The gospel is not primarily about forgiveness. It's not primarily about good feelings. It's not primarily about power. All of those things are byproducts, sparks. It's primarily about the presence of God. From Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, God is longing for a place to dwell, a people to abide with and a people who will abide. I said this earlier, but I love church. I love worship gatherings, love conferences, small groups, worship nights, you name it. I was raised in church. It's in my blood. I love stuff like that. But if the presence of God is not the thing that's being hosted, if we're not actually interested in hosting God, I'm not interested. I just don't care. Because if we're not here for Jesus, this is all kind of silly. We have generations of people, both young and old, who are leaving the church because all they see is over-programmatized hypocrisy. So they leave the church and search for fulfillment in the world, which they will never find, by the way. 19th century evangelist Charles Finney says this, if the presence of God is in the church, the church will draw the world in. If the presence of God is not in the church, the world will draw the church out. Church, I I believe if we wanna see the continuation of what God is already doing here, the transformation of an entire community. I mean, who was here a few weeks ago when when Greg was talking about um, Restoration South Campus at 7-Eleven? Maybe, I think there's another South Campus at 
at, the, at Wu Sushi. We go there a lot, they know us. Um, we wanna see the transformation of a community. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, welcoming him into every aspect, every moment of our lives, because when we honor him as the guest, he becomes the host. And in the end, the hope is that what is said in Mark 1 can be said of our church. It was heard that he was in the house and immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. Wouldn't that be cool if our church which is full of people all the time because they heard Jesus was here. Yes, yes. Like, man, that's, why well, care about anything else than that? Amen. So we're gonna move into a time of communion. Um, but before we do, I wanna say we're gonna have prayer partners in the front, right up here, right up here. In the Tim Keller quote I mentioned earlier, he says that, the gospel is about the presence of God. The entirety of scripture is about God wanting to dwell with the people and him doing whatever is necessary to remove any obstacle out of the way of that happening. So maybe you are here and you're on fire. You're hungry, you're ready for the fast. You're, you're already fasting. That's how like spiritual you are. You're just already doing it. You're, you're like Daniel fasting as you descend into a juice only. Maybe you're here and you're not sure about Jesus. You're just here because your New Year's resolution is to be a better person. And you figured, might as well not miss the first Sunday of the year and start off on the wrong foot. Maybe you're sitting in your chair and this thing about the presence of God has been stirring in your heart. Maybe you hear the words of Jesus, you hear the life of Jesus and you're like, oh man, there's something happening in here. I need to, I need to give my life to that because if, if it's his anointing that breaks the yoke, man, I look at my life, I, I'm yoked to so many different things that are just bringing death and destruction and I need life. Yes. Amen. If that's you, I just wanna say, you need to give your life to Jesus. I don't wanna say, I, I'm not gonna say like, if it's the right thing for you, if it works for you, it will work for you. It is the right thing for you to do. You should do it and you shouldn't wait to do it. And I'm not, and I'm also not gonna say, you know, cause when I grew up in youth group, they were like, you need to give your life to Jesus because you don't know what could happen on the drive home. You know, it's like, okay, uh, cool. Um, I'm not gonna say that cause we're probably all gonna make it home okay. But I will say, you should give your life to Jesus now because why wouldn't you want to experience life as soon as you can? Like, you know, you got to eat the cookies right when they come out of the oven. Like, why wait? I'm sorry, that's a horrible parallel. But, um, but I, I believe the presence of Jesus is here and, and he wants to give you life. He wants to free you from oppression. He wants to free you from depression. He wants to free you from oppression. He wants you to walk in freedom and wholeness. So if that's you, if you need Jesus, I implore you, come forward and pray with one of our prayer partners. Um, for the rest of us, um, we have a family meal to get to. That's communion, where Jesus, just like here in the story of the road to Emmaus, takes the bread and, and the wine and he breaks the bread and blesses it. And it's in the breaking of the bread that the disciples' eyes are open to who he is. 
And the same is true for us. It's in the taking of the elements that our eyes are open to see who Jesus is. But what's funny is the disciples don't see Jesus when they realize who he is. He vanishes. It says what they see is each other. And in the breaking of the bread, we recognize Jesus for who he is, but we also see his body for who they are.